This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday the 16th of March and with me today I have a great friend of the show, Hugh Henry, on his birthday no less. With so much going on this week, we're delighted to have Hugh in person in London. Hugh needs little introduction, a highly regarded ex-hedge fund manager, now a St Bart's luxury hotelier, investor, surfer and of course the acid capitalist. Hugh, welcome. What a pleasure to be back. It's lovely to have you back. Where do we start? Well, there are many places we could start. I mean, if I I've been, um, I've been a, a vagabond for the. I've been travelling for a month. I've yeah. not been on my precious island. I think I've probably got a few weeks still of moving around. We could discuss the dinner I had with just the hottest rock chick. I mean, she plays Jimi Hendrix style. I mean, uh, Queen Kwong. Uh, she had the song uh, "Sad Man." I'm a sad man in LA. I'm fed up taking cocaine. People don't take cocaine. It's, it's appalling. Anyway, we could talk about that. We could talk about uh, Brad Pitt's healer. Uh, yeah. He took me places. In fact, I'm, I'm listening to my, my healer man and I have to project with the heart and the chakra. Um, I went in and he said, how much are you worth? I said, like, get out of here. We don't talk about that stuff. We don't talk about that um, stuff. We were talking about ego and anti-ego and how it ends up being a bit like the extremes of right and left-wing um, politics, they end up in the same spot. Yeah. They end up at totalitarianism. Kind of interesting. We could discuss that, but but really, hey, it's my birthday. I was born in mid-March. And mid-March is one of those periods where um, money, money market, credit liquidity in the universe of finance, this is one of those rare periods in the year where it's, it's modest. Mm-hmm. It's not abundant. And why is it not abundant? It's not abundant because we're coming up to the quarter end. And point to point, we, we take snapshots of banks and their balance sheet and their credit exposure. But of course, in between those points, if you were to see the, the VCR, yeah. you, would, you would really kind of see the heights. And they don't want you to see those heights. And so they are in abeyance. And the system therefore becomes vulnerable to what I'd call truth-seeking events. And we're in the midst of that. Obviously, it's been hit off by, I mean, you could almost call it the butterfly wings of this uh, Silicon Valley bank. So it's um, a chaos theory then? A little bit. I mean, it's, 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 more than, it's, it's clearly more than a butterfly. And I think I was alluding to, in one of my exchanges, the, hey, we're in the heart of the city of London. There's mm-hmm. a lot of classic scholars and, and one of the, the terms out there is a gnomon is a gnomon that um, the, the name of the messenger actually yeah. tells you more than the message itself sometimes. May I recall back in the height of the, the tech bubble, the Nasdaq bubble, um, at the end of the previous century, um, and there was a Swiss company called Miracle, a software company, and really it was a miracle that it floated. You know, the, the yeah. name has resonance. And Silicon Valley and the resonance with regard to the connectivity to, to private equity, to the venturists, I think is, is a more profound message. And we'll expand upon that. And this, I guess, is 20 years of, of, of cheap money coming to home to roost? Well, this is the aftermath of the, the engagement, the reaction to the great financial crisis of 2008. So let's call it 15 years. Um, I mean, obviously there was money before that, but you know, let's call. It, I think let's date it from kind of two thousand March, March two thousand and nine. Yeah. Again, yeah. we are on the fifteenth anniversary thereabouts of the initiation of American quantitative easing. Indeed. Now, during that great financial crisis, um, you famously said on Newsnight you recommend viewers to panic. Should investors be panicking now? 
I panicked yesterday. Um, and that took the form of selling. I, I have a self-select pension fund. Yep. Yep. And actually, I think I'm getting closer to being able to get my hands on it. You yes. know, the George Osborne um, made changes. The Tory government made changes many years back, allowing you to get um, access to the yep. to your fund earlier. I'm getting closer to that point. We won't comment, but we all know what age that would be. Yeah. Um, and but the and so I it's largely benign neglect. And I had uh, I like the convexivity of of gold mining stocks. Um, but I sold them all yesterday um, because I, I lived, indeed I profited at the end from the roller coaster of 2008. And so um, one of the things that befalls an asset like gold is that smart people recognize that it has a very legitimate place in portfolios. And therefore it's the last thing they wish to jettison. Mm-hmm. And indeed it's, it's envied by others. And so it becomes a liquid asset. It's something that other people would be willing to purchase. But th- all that means is that when the when we get the purge of and the, the intensity of the liquidity crisis, we haven't seen that yet. All, all we've seen in the past week has been an intensity to hedge yep. a reassessment of the immediate future. We haven't seen the liquidity crisis. Perhaps we won't, but if we do, gold will be purged. I mean, 2008, was that a, s- a solvency crisis rather than a liquidity crisis? It was a collateral crisis. These, these are all collateral crises, um, you know, um, which, of course, uh, is a domino, but it begins with a collateral crisis. I mean, 2008 was J.P. Morgan just accept, uh, refusing to accept the collateral and yeah. therefore demanding an unwind. Yeah. Ironically, that it was J.P. Morgan that saved the market in 1907 with a solvency crisis. Yeah, long time ago. Indeed, indeed. But I guess, look, this is what happens when you raise rates by 500 basis points over a short number of months. Well, I, I believe I've been vocal as to my, my horror with regard to the intent, um, the ambition, and indeed the realization of, of, of that um, tightening by the Federal Reserve, which has then kicked um, all the other central banks into, into copying and following sweet. Um, There'd been a lot of reference to the 1970s, to a decade of persistent inflation. What is inflation? Inflation is that um, the price increases in goods and services the previous year are maintained the following year and and with even more, and the following year with with even even more. Um, And there's a speculation that we're back in in that sort of environment. Um, I reject that because let's keep it simple, folk. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon, and there's not enough money. In fact, I see money being, I see money contracting. You need money to be expanding uh, in order to, to have uh, the lubricant to support that additional 10, 15, 20% in terms of the money transaction to commit to the same level of goods and services. That's not happening. We know it's not happening because discretionary goods and services, people are cutting back yep. on that. Um, so 1970s, references to Paul Volcker. So the Federal Reserve uh, ultimately took rates to, to 20, o- overnight rates to 20%, the Fed funds rate. Um, and my point was that back then, the 70s was the, what is the opposite of pinnacle? It was the, the, the destination, the trough, the trough, yeah. the trough of debt to GDP and the pinnacle of a cultural demand that we deleverage for in the aftermath of the, uh, bankruptcy of the financial system at the end of the 1920s. So we had 40 years. C- cultural movements of that significance are slow. But by the 1970s, debt GDP was, I mean, let's forget decimal points and round to the nearest. It was 1x GDP. So 1x times 20% Fed funds is 20. Fast forward 50 years to today, and 4x debt to GDP times 5% Fed funds rate we're back to the to mm-hmm. the the heights. I would say the heights of absurdity. But things break. And this is why things are breaking. Yeah. Rates are punishingly high. So, what does Jay Powell do now? Is he painting himself into a corner? Well, he 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 did create this corner 
he created this corner through the the fibbing with regard to quantitative easing. In the midst of the pandemic in the summer of 2020, um, it was beholden upon him, and I get it, uh, to allay the concerns of the household sector and indeed the wider economic community. Um, but he found himself in the unusual position of presenting on daytime television. Mm-hmm. It's not really the purview of the Fed chairman. Um, and he was pressed, and, he, and indeed he, he volunteered that the Fed were printing money. They were printing money in response to this extraordinary uh, set of circumstances, and therefore they were underwriting what would be a subsequent economic recovery. But when pressed, are you printing money? You know, and there was a valedictory tone to him, yes, we are. Um, that just wasn't true. However, it sticks and having been the author and having been very insistent that he was printing money, he therefore took ownership of the the higher prices. Now, the higher prices for goods and services are a result of an extraordinary supply-demand mm-hmm. imbalance mm-hmm. created by an extraordinary pandemic. Mm-hmm. Really nothing to Again, do with... Again, which started in March. Started in March. Indeed, and with the, the profound uh, mark-to-market painful period was essentially the kind of Monday of Tuesday of next yeah. week. You know, we, yeah. we, it's the third weekend yeah. is, is when uh, the liquidity systems is at its most kind of stretched. Um, so, yeah. Uh, th- and and so, yeah, so Jay, having made that bold and I think fictitious claim, therefore took ownership of it. And so institutionally, the Fed has, t- the Fed, if you will, is, I think, sacrificing the economy uh, on a cross of trying to restore its own credibility. And I find that awful, unforgivable. So, so what do you think he does? He he raises rates. I mean, uh, so we continue to break things. Uh, we continue. We, we break, break, break until you actually get the liquidity crisis. Yeah. All we're getting just now is that more of the financial community are actually coming around to recognizing what the the inversion in government bond yield curves have been saying. They have not. Let me just say that they have not been predicting future Fed funds rates. They've simply, to my point, been saying, we're effectively at 20% rates mm-hmm. and, and we will break. The financial plumbing is it's shuddering, if yeah. you will. Something's going to break, okay? And therefore, um, we are hedging for, we don't know what the breakage will be, but we know the consequences of the breakage and we are hedging. We're not predicting Fed funds. We're hedging the aftermath of the Fed's blindness or its conceit. So SVB then was a canary in the coal mine? Very much so. Um, so the, the nomen as a nomen, um, I've spoken at large. I, I use this word conceit, the conceit and arrogance, that most of the travails, most of the, uh, the pivot points, these extreme uh, reversions and expectations come about because in the preceding months and years, there is the conceit and arrogance of well-formed arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going into the great financial crisis, the, the conceit, but indeed the well-formed argument, was that um, a diversified, po- a geographically diversified portfolio of American mortgages um, was riskless because we had not the occasion, we had not the data set that would suggest that um, nationwide U.S. house prices would fall. Um, and that led to enormous risk-taking because it was deemed to be, you weren't risk-taking until it was revealed you were risk-taking. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the conceit. The conceit this time around has been the the willingness of significant economic agents, that notably institutional, large, large institutional investors, and their mad, mad scramble into the world of private equity. Yep. Um, and the private equity houses themselves um, are, colluding is, colluding is one of those kind of funky words, but they, th- there's a consensus amongst them that they would well, pr- they've ke- they've kept the status quo. They've kept the wheels spinning for themselves. Yeah, they they haven't marked to market in the aggressive manner that we saw in, in the in the in the markdown in the value of Facebook, Snap. I mean, I mean you how know, Netflix. How wonderful to be able to mark your own homework when the market is falling out of bed. Well, I you know, and what they say is, well, you, if we could do time travel and go back, what's the asset that you would buy? Um, Yes, U.S. equities, but what's the the generic asset that seems to do well, independent of the sovereign domain, and that would be a property, commercial mm-hmm. property. 
property of all sorts. Um, and what's perhaps and what what's unique about property? And it may be that, of course, in downturns, that the the number of transactions is less and less, and therefore the the strain or the clamour for mark to market is resisted, and therefore you can yes. ride it out. So I suppose there are fewer transactions to actually get yeah. a true price. Yeah, and and maybe that has facilitated or has allowed you to to re- retain the investment. And so perhaps that's the argument that they've been having with private equity. That hey, like, you know, we know where it is, but let's let's not. Yeah. Where are all the customers' yachts? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, let's yeah. not tell the customers. Yeah. Um, now, SVB uh, and also there's a very marked amount of carry in those um, in those funds for for the principals as well. Well, we c- I know where the principals' yachts are. They're in Saint Bart's. <laughs> again, where are the customers' yachts? Um, indeed, um, and the Silicon Valley Bank was the community banker to that community. And they, you know, startups, it's the final three to six months, you you, you raise capital, you're burning it. And then they step in and they fund you to the three to six months to the next uh, fundraising. Um, And in return, they get wealth management from the fabulous wealth being created. Um, They get preferential placement in in these amazing funds and asset allocators like Sequoia and and others is very virtuous and what's been staggering has been how that community turned on them Mm -hmm. and that bank was nothing but kind of benevolent to that community but it was facing us it it didn't have the comfort choice that the large institutional investors and the principals of those funds had in that there's, we won't see any fundraising in perhaps a decade, right? Yeah, certainly and within that sector. I mean, it couldn't it, land. I mean, who's going to fund the the twenty sixth best dog walking app in Southern California now? Mm. But imagine, I mean, it, um, you know, there's this very famous uh, psych- psychological test. Forgive me, I can't remember. I'm sure we'll put it in the program notes. The authors of it, um, but it's called the Invisible Gorilla. And it captures, this, it's a, a building like this, and you have the, the lifts coming up to, to mm-hmm. the floor, two lifts, and you've got some kids kind of having an impromptu game of basketball amongst themselves. And, and you're asked to count how many, the, the white top team, how many hoops they, they score, let's say. And so you're focusing intently on something. And at the same time, a guy in a gorilla suit comes out of yeah. the, the lift and walks through the game. And you don't see, a lot of people don't see it. SVB was a, a modest gorilla in the sense that you know, they had reported their results. They had reported a mark-to-market loss of 15 to $16 billion alongside equity of 15 to $16 yeah. billion. You know, they, they were absolutely walking dead, but people chose not and again, I can see they chose not to actually uh, weigh or determine the significance of that. And then it seemed to me that the risk department was a bit asleep at the wheel. Um, yeah. I mean, that's called a bull market. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. you make money and you get away with all sorts of you know, comedy. Yeah. Always the way. So then what happens next for, for that subsector of the economy? The banking, uh, the secondary banking or the or banking? More, or more, the, the more that sort of technology. Technology, um, well, it doesn't feel. I mean, there we, there we, we, we briefly, briefly given credence to the Nasdaq bubble of uh, twenty, the, the the peak of twenty three years ago. But yeah. um, it was a clarion call as to the revolution in our society. You know, we didn't have we didn't have iPhones yeah. when Nasdaq yeah. was at five thousand, um, but it was heralding that our life was going to change. Um, 23 years in the future, our life will obviously be, I think, will be richer, will be more interesting. But was the private equity movement, was it actually heralding something pr- profound that's going to change our life in the, in the manner that these supercomputers, perhaps they'll be embedded in our mm-hmm. brains, you know. But uh, it's difficult to, to, to imagine that we're on the cusp of another profound, um, dominating yep. change. Yeah. So, mm, um, technology, mm, you know. Then if we go back to, to Mr. Powell, I mean, if he has to continue to raise rates, like the ECB raised rates today, if he continues to, to somehow try and 
combat inflation, does he not create an incredible depression in the US economy? He has him and his predecessors and his and his global peer group are responsible for the Great Depression that no one is willing to discuss. Yeah. Um, and let me, that's a, you know, talk is cheap. And again, we'll, in the, the show notes, we'll, we'll put up a, a slide by uh, Matthew Klein. Matthew Klein's a, an amazing American economist. Um, he co-authored with Michael Pettis, uh, Trade Wars, Class Wars, um, an immense book mm-hmm. about globalization. And he put out a chart which was to take uh, U.S. GDP per capita, per person, and and the starting point uh, index to 100, and we take um, the emergence of the of the U.S. financial bankruptcy in 1930, and and we t- and we take the the path taken by that G- GDP per capita in the years thereafter, and at the same time you can put on top of that. Uh, the GDP per capita index to 100 uh, for the U.S. starting from, let's say, this, this point 15 years ago. So we got 15 years of, of two discrete mm-hmm. data sets. Okay? The Great Depression, the 100 has gone to 190. You can see it in the chart now. You can hear my voice, but you can see the chart. Um, the corresponding level for us in, in the silent depression, we're at like somewhere between 115, 120. But you think of that. Okay. Now the retort to that might be, yeah, okay, well, but we kind of got a sec, we got the Second World War, and you got the great uh, build-up of arm- armaments and, and everything. But yeah, we had a war, yeah. <laughs> um, and actually we had a war. We've gone through that. The, the pandemic was, mm-hmm. was was a war, and a war with an invisible kind of uh, virus, uh, which has brought forward, you know, a ton of fiscal spending. Um, yeah, and like the, the largest so, debt pile since the war. So why are we not talking about it? We, we, we live today in a depression. Now, uh, thankfully, we've not had many. I want to say 1830. I want to say um, um, 1870 to 1890, 1930 to 1950, and, and now 2009 to, to X in the future. So, But we haven't yet seen unemployment move. Um, or or I I don't know. I mean, you know the, um, the well, unless they're making the numbers up, unless unless it's 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 classed differently, and you know, the gig economy plays a much bigger part, and it's not within statistics. Yeah, it's something's going on. It, it um, the Wall Street, and it's like it's very excited about these data points. You know, so. I guess Wall Street has to, we have to hang our hats on something, don't we? Yeah, so let me, I'm seeking clarity to, to this. I don't wish to sound a naysayer. Um, I think it was 10 days ago, um, a professor at Harvard put out, and he's a, he's a Russian follower, political uh, scientist, and, and the Russian Central Bank or the Russian Economic Authorities um, reported GDP for last year. And I want to say it was reported as down 2.2%. Um, and that has been accepted by all of the major financial institutions, both private and, um, you know, the, the, these um, public entities, IMF, etc. Did the Russian economy contract by 2.2% last year? I'd like to think, well, I'd imagine it contracted by a lot more. A lot, a lot more. Yeah, I think it did. Um, what is the probity? What are, what are the chances that that figure was not corrupted? Mm-hmm. And isn't 2.2 remarkably close to um, the political demands of of of, of Vladimir? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that number kind of is a bit Goldilocks. Uh, but it was accepted. So we we accept things. And so I, I want to say that the willingness to accept this tightness in the labor market comes from a fanaticism and indeed... Um, from the fact there's only five people in the world that truly understand uh, the nature of money. And, and therefore the Fed has been able to convince the world that it's printing money when it's not. Yep. And, and printing money creates inflation. And, it, and inflation comes from tightness and supply. And, and labor is the, the, 
the biggest price in the economy. And so everyone wants to believe it. They've wanted to believe it for the last 15 years. Uh, believing it has been the road to ruin. It has not worked, but it hasn't stopped them wanting to believe it. And therefore, that's where I'm a little bit uh, more sober on the tightness of the labor mm -hmm. market. And more so because go go walk amongst the, the, the real people. And I was like, hey, the labor market's amazing. Like, life must be really good. Like, yeah, you're a finance type, aren't you? Like, our life sucks. Thank you yeah. very much. So yeah. there's a disconnect somewhere. No, indeed, indeed. And I think the UK has its own, own issues post-Brexit and, and the labour market and cost well, of living. Well, you say that. Um, I, I, yeah, yes. Yes and no. Brexit could be Trump. Um, but actually, the UK and the, and the US joined at the hip in that they are the principal recipients of capital flows, yep. global ca capital flows. Um, and again, this is where we live. <laughs> Our world does not make sense. Economics is a... Car crash. I mean, nothing makes it. Globalization is a good thing. Ricardian equivalence, you know, specialization of labor. There are, you know, we're, we're, our lives are enhanced by the fact that China can do the, these things more cheaply and therefore we can go on Amazon and our living standards go up because a lot of household items have fallen in price. I mean, when I was a kid, you lived in fear that someone would break into your house and steal the, the VCR, the mm -hmm. video recorder, you know, to get some money. No one steals the we don't have video recorded, but yeah. no one steals shit like that anymore because it's not worth it. No one steals cars, you know. No, just watch watches. What? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they around around here, but yeah. you know, and not in the hoods. So, um, and then the the thing that doesn't make sense is okay. Hold on a second, it's because one of the great mysteries about the UK, but also the US, is that investment levels are really low. Um, so the the. The, the citizens of these countries, the, the, the risk-taking citizens don't want to invest and their governments don't seem to want to invest. Yeah. Uh, and yet they're recipients of all this capital, capital-seeking yeah. invest. Why are, they, why are they not going to where the return on capital and the desire is higher? The system is so messed up. Yeah, I recorded a podcast with a, with a great UK financier the other day who highlighted the fact that in the 1970s, the, the UK pension funds equated to 55% of the London market. Currently, they own 5% of the London market. Well, yeah. Um, when I was a boy, uh, when I was starting off in, in Edinburgh working for um, a financial, a, um, a pension fund manager, an esteemed pension fund manager, first of all, they were managing $3 billion. Um, uh, as of 18 months ago, they, they almost got to $300 billion. 300, yeah, 300 billion, so three to 300. Yeah, we've had asset price inflation, but those yeah, boys yeah, really yeah, nailed yeah. it. Um, but if you, go, and they ran 60-40, they were a pension yep. manager, they had a, they had a managed account, um, and in that 60 equity portfolio, the US allocation was 2.5%, so 2.5% of 60%, yeah? yeah. Things, things change. I mean, that would have grown, of course, and then the, the size of the US market, and also that technology bubble that we spoke about that we've had for the last 15 years. Indeed. 23 um, years. 23 I mean, I years. can recall just um, beseeching people, you know, to, that we had to, you know, that the best companies, I mean, like 2.5%, so you should have 2.5% in individual US businesses. I mean, they're way better than yeah. the, the stuff we can find elsewhere. So if rates are going to carry on rising, and you know, where do you see terminal? Do, do you have an idea on terminal rates? Or is it just keeps going I, until I, more I, things are broken? It, 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 it doesn't matter, terminal rates. I mean, they won't get to terminal. Well, okay, so let's say, I mean, even at 5%. Terminal rates, now let me tell you, the terminal rate, zero. Fair. Yeah. So yeah, the risk-free rate now, we sit at, you know, even, even the Fed's fund rate, let's say, so 5%. So... Actually, any investment, if you're sitting there, you have to do better than 5%. So, you know, obviously, that puts equities into question. I mean, what happens to the bond market? I mean, first of all, I mean, why would you expose yourself to risk assets? You know, so in the UK, what is, I don't even know, what, what is uh, cash rates? What were the ECB raised rates today to where, to like two and a half? Yeah, a bit you, more than that, I think. A bit, bit yeah. more. Um, the US was at five um, you can't invest at five anymore. You're investing around about 3.75. Um, but, you know, as of like a month ago, you could have had your money in two year in US and earned 5%. Yep. Um, 
I was on Bloomberg the other day. It's like, but isn't that risky? What? It's kind of risky if you if you if your terminal rate this year is seven and a half. But yeah. boy, am I willing to take that risk. Yeah. And then um, something which we haven't figured out, well, we haven't reflected on, is like from a UK perspective, uh, that five percent to put in perspective, that's a, that that could be in a, an unhedged dollar position. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll make money in the dollar as well. So yeah, um, everything else, uh, and then you've got. Like just this, you've got so much ammunition if everything really comes off. I mean, believe me, I want to buy stuff. Yeah. Indeed. The, um, I'm, so you asked about bonds, yeah. government bonds. Um, I, oh my God, I love, I love um, long dated. Why do I love long dated government bonds, US government bonds? I love it because um, owing to the duration, there's an implicit... Um, leverage like the price response is is way greater um you the amount of two year or or cash money that you'd have to own to replicate that Mm -hmm. via leverage wouldn't be feasible for the regular joe with his his sip or with his investment um, product um it would be available um via an isda for a hedge fund yeah um and and why do i like that if we look at the uh, the tilts, the TLT, the iShares, um, the ultra-long treasury. So it's kind of duration greater, greater than 17 years. It was subject to the most profound mean reversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, 18 months ago, it traded at 180. And before our dear friends in, in Silicon Valley blew up, it was trading like 95. So it halved. Yeah. It was trading 15, 20% below the 20-year moving average. So let's say, let's let's do something silly and, and say that you'd received no income or ignore the income from those treasuries. Um, you've actually lost about 15 to 20% over the last 20 years owning treasuries. Now, you haven't lost because you've been mm-hmm. compensated by a carry, but your return now has been reset almost to zero. And again, remember what I said to you earlier, um, the last 15 years, the progress in U.S. GDP per capita is is dramatically trailing what was experienced during the Great Depression. Yeah. This is preposterous. This is prepo- This is an opportunity. Um, so for me, government bonds, is particularly the American variety, uh, represent where the S and P was. In March two thousand and nine, you didn't want to buy it, mm-hmm. but, but you, you had, had to buy it. Yeah. And then finally, I want to say, remember, I was saying to you these capital flows coming into the U.S. and the U.K. and they principally come, principally they come from these large continental countries: China, Asia, most of Europe. Um, that. Um, Play a beggar thy neighbor game of persistently producing trade surpluses. Um, and that comes from um, taking demand, potential demand, out of their economies, transferring kind of wealth from their household sectors to the center, and then transferring it um, into the U- US and the UK as a means of controlling currency. Again, to deliver persist. You're not, economics again is not meant to deliver persistent trade surpluses. Something is going wrong with the system when that happens. But those persistent trade surpluses and their capital flows are the mechanism which which transform mean reversion into the most amazing profit opportunities. No, I get that. Speaking of mean reversion, last time you were on, we had an interesting conversation about crypto, and you said there would be a time to buy. And I note that you've been quite vocal on grayscale. What's your thought there? So grace, grayscale is filthy in terms of. Like, can I, I mean, I have to be very careful with the adjectives I use. Um, I am no great advocate of those promoting mm-hmm. that that scheme. Yeah. Uh, why? Because they charge a two percent. Um, I mean, who in God's name would charge two percent AUM? For, which is for a passive strategy. <laughs> no, that that. Everything has context, and and they were able to, they were afforded that great uh, rent, 
because it was desperately difficult for institutions to gain exposure to Bitcoin. Bitcoin yep. was surging in value, in price. Value, I don't know, but in, but in price. Um, and therefore, they were one of the only means to get it. And such was the clamor for that exposure, the greed, if you will, um, that you know, it's an investment trust mm -hmm. um, or in the U.S. vernacular, it's a closed-end fund. Um, and it would trade at a lofty premium, uh, more like 40%. Yeah. And, and actually... So sort of a scarcity premium, isn't it? Because, yeah, scarcity. Yeah. But then uh, it became very reflexive because for there was a, um, a labeling of... What is the labeling? Let's call it... The labeling is not professional investor, but, you know, um, let's call it a professional investor. Yeah. You could go to the trust and the, and you could ask them to issue new stock uh, and they would invest in you. They would they would effectively... Um, you you transfer your funds. They would buy Bitcoin. And in six months' time, you would then receive the stock. So that's a little bit like the Sprott Uranium Trust... Probably, you yeah. You have a sort of open tap. Well, yeah. yeah. And s but what that means was you were buying Grayscale at NAV when it was trading at 40% premium. Yeah. 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 Um, and that was just, I mean, that's where yeah, I, I've had interviews with uh, Kyle. Was it Kyle Davies from the three hour, the Broken Three Arrows Fund? And, the, you know, all my all my friends were playing this game, but you were very cautious with how much you would feed, feed the beast. And Kyle and his gang came in and they just went, <laughs> they just went so super crazy and and the NAV so the holdings in Bitcoin for Grayscale I think at the peak reached 70 billion 60 billion 60 billion I mean you know and, and remember the problem was it was like a a snake swallowing an elephant there was about there was a 20 billion uh, lump from Kyle and gang mm -hmm. okay and we all knew in six months time that that would be put onto the market to capture yeah. the arbitrage. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, we saw that there was a Canadian um, ETF launched. There was the futures launched in the States. Yeah. The scarcity in terms of the means yeah. of gaining exposure, there was no scarcity. Okay. Yeah. So who was going to buy the 20, you know? Yeah. Um, and so what we've seen, of course, is that uh, rather than trading at a 40% premium to NAV, it trades at a 40% discount. And we've seen the best part of an 80% contraction in the, the underlying asset, yep. namely Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. So today, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm desperately eager to buy things. Why am I desperately eager to buy things? Because I've made just about every mistake. If you live long enough, you just about make every mistake. If you're still alive, you know, Nassim Taleb um, and the, the paradox that it's the 55-year-old um, Italian gent that is awarded life assurance when, yeah. when, when we invented the, life assurance. The smoker. Yeah. yeah. Not the 21-year-old yeah. kid. Yeah. And, and first brush is like, but that makes no sense. It makes a lot of sense because he survived yeah. everything that a yeah. really tough life could throw at him. Um, and so that was going on. Um, and, and, and I did not buy the S&P in March. Too. I, I executed yeah. very well in 2008. Yes. I wouldn't be talking to you mere mortals if I was if I bought that S and P <laughs> in March two thousand and nine. I would be I don't know I don't know where I'd be, um, but I didn't. But anyway, so today grayscale, you can buy an asset which has profoundly mean reverted, and which is trading at a forty percent discount to NEV. And if you just mention the name on on tw on the Twitter sphere, like people just get so angry. They're just not interested. But that's that's where the opportunity lies. That's where the opportunity But don't get me wrong. Um in the in the world that I fear that we're going into, that the the bond curves are telling us, the hedging is telling us, well there's a market with that grayscale, the the underlying unit probably could fall fifty percent again. I mean Bitcoin could yeah. could fall fifty percent. So let's talk about that sort of future. Um it would seem we're in a, you know, a tricky time for, for financial markets. What What is the catalyst of that changing? Well, if we were to have your crystal ball and look six to 18 months in advance, you know, what do we need to look at? What are the triggers to get out, to get through this? Triggers, do you mean in terms of what else goes wrong before the, the central banks? Yeah, both actually. Let's do that. So let's do what else goes wrong and then how do we, how do we see it being repaired? Mm. So we, we get more more failures, you know, the, um, the, the status quo of 18 months ago 
was sustainable. What I mean by that, 18 months ago, Apple was a $3 trillion uh, company, and that was sustainable. Um, implicitly, large investors, um, they're smart, and they were weighing up the fact that we seem to be in a depression, a very risky operating and commercially very risky environment. And with Apple, they were saying they were willing um, such was their expectation that Apple could evade a lot of the commercial risk. And I think that's true. That they were effectively willing uh, to lose money mm -hmm. in Apple. Um, and their judgment would be that they wouldn't lose a lot, but almost certainly over, a, let's say, a 10-year holding period, most likely they would lose money. Um, but the loss there would compare very favorably with the losses, perhaps, recorded elsewhere in the economy by businesses with more commercial risk yeah okay um, that was a sustainable set of circumstances as long as the carry was kept uh, preciously low this is this is we live in a world where the real rates the real rates up until the great financial crisis uh, were so fantastically large uh, and rewarding to the creditor community that that's kind of why we had the housing, you know, mm -hmm. you know the, when we had this, uh, uh, what did we call it, ninja lending, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I have no, you know, let's, yeah. let's be proportionate, I just got divorced, I'm a drug dealer, um, I'm just out of prison, and, yeah. and the bank's like, like, do you want the money or do you not want yeah. the money? You know, the creditors wanted to avail you of the credit because the return to the credit community was so high. Okay, Now, we're at a point where in a depression, you have to reverse the, the rewards and you've got to push that to the debtors. Um, and I think that that means uh, we need negative real interest rates. And I think really that was the purpose of quantitative easing, to create negative real rates, which um, put a rent on the creditor class and actually you create an income for, mm -hmm. you know, for, the, for the people who are going to revolutionize the future and, and yeah. indeed consumers and how we, we've got this deficit of, of potential demand and, and how we, we solve that. Um, so it, a long way of saying that you know we, we lived we created a, a construct which could only survive with a, a carry of zero nominal carry of pretty much zero and and a negative carry in real terms that's the the financial repression and, and we would need decades of that and and we would write the ship and I, I still believe that's the case um, and then we had the fed folly yep um, so the fed folly breaks things um, we have um, Commercial property. You so, so Silicon Valley crisis was always imminent. Their uh, their unmarked marked to loss or whatever that term would be versus equity. They had yeah. they had no equity. Yeah. Um, but it was a fragile but sustainable equilibrium as long as the deposit base was fine, and then it wasn't, and therefore they had to, you know, they had to mark. And you have that commercial property is fine unless there's a liquidity moment and, and properties do hit the market and therefore there's the revelation. Well, there's a clearing crisis. There's there. a clearing, and it's truth, truth-seeking markets. Yeah. Um, I, I get, with the Silicon Valley et al. funding, so the funding from the VC guys has come to a halt. Yeah. The fund, the life support from the bank now is over. I don't so think HSBC is gonna be extending its credit to that yeah. space. So we will see a collapse in, in startups and technology firms because we just so. won't be able to s get the funding. I fear so. Um, but that, in it, the knock-on for that will be the need to have greater clarity and truth in the mark-to-markets for yep. these enormous venturist funds. Yeah. And that's a lot of GDP we've just discussed. We've discussed commercial property, uh, the VC world. Um, the private equity world. Private equity world. Then, then I mean, the... I can't quite quantify it, but we've been discussing. Uh, it started in Japan, but we know it exists within our fold in the UK and elsewhere. Um, the zombie companies. Mm -hmm. Zombie companies, again, were sustainable as long as the carry was zero. Yeah. The carry's five. ECB's raised rates. Probably the Fed will raise rates again. Yeah. Um, we're breaking things. So the, the steps ahead is, is just the, the witnessing of things breaking. Um, and a, li a liquidity event will 
force the hand of a Federal Reserve that doesn't want to cut rates, they will cut rates. Now, there's wider implications. Um, and again, we come back to globalization and we come back to this. Um, I'm very mindful. I'd listen to a, a podcast and I'd, I'd, I'd give it, um, I, um, I paid 70 bucks to subscribe to a podcast. Grants? No. Uh, Michael Pettis okay. uh, and, and Matthew Klein. Um, I, I find they're, they have genius. Um, and the speculation, and Ray Dalio talks about this as well, like with, it's funny, he talks about like with a, a cadence of 70 years, give or take 25. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give or take 25 years is quite a, quite a wide, uh, quite a wide va variation, variance, but I'm sympathetic to it. Um, where the whole system needs to be, um, the monetary system has to be um, re-engineered. And I think we're getting closer to that. So the re-engineering of, of the monetary system, of the fiat monetary system, if I take the Pettis and Klein view, is that the US and the UK have to emulate what Europe, and more specifically what China does, which is to discourage capital flows into their community. Because those capital flows have effectively destroyed entrepreneurship and capitalism, and they've turned um, their citizens into speculators because yep. the only thing has been rising asset prices. Yep. Yep. And rising asset prices over the last 10 years now embody a lot of fictional wealth. Mm -hmm. But now, fictional wealth is not motivated by avarice, not motivated by trying to pull the wool over people's heads. We introduced a lot of debt to GDP. You know, it's gone up and that exaggerates the potential of GDP growth and that exaggeration creates mark to markets which are too high yeah. and, and that gets unwound so the essentially the US and the dollar have to volunteer have to, to get this got to be a kind of a sovereign heads of government type thing they've got to kind of work out um, you know I hate Bre bread and woods I think was Brentwoods was nothing. Uh, Brentwoods simply was something proposed, didn't really work. Private sector worked it out and created the Euro-Dollar system. Mm -hmm. Euro-Dollar Euro -dollar system is in retreat, which is why yep. I'm very fearful. It's why I was very fearful of the Fed. The Fed, the Fed do not measure the creation of US dollars out with uh, the sovereign state mm -hmm. of America. They, yep. they, they seem not disinterested. And I think that in terms of the quantum of new, doll new dollars created, Offshore versus onshore and within the, the domain of the Federal Reserve. I think it's actually it's like two two or three X mm -hmm. offshore what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so now we, we know that onshore money supply is contracting. And offshore, I think it's, it's been increasing. contracting for oh, two okay. years. Yeah. Again, that's why I'm I'm fearful. Um, that leads that that means there's a profound shortage of dollars. That means the dollar's gonna go rocketing higher and higher. And then ultimately I think the heads of state is all about how we bring the dollar down and that's done by discouraging speculative capital flows into the US and the UK. Yeah. I think. Interesting. What's the timeline? How does how does that actually play out? Um you know, it's the Hemingway is it Hemingway? You know, it's the, the bankruptcy thing, you know, slow, 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 quick, quick, quick. And we've just we've just introduced one one Q tip. We've we've just gone quick. Yeah. And, and I think there's quick, quick, quick. Um, so look, it's very, very interesting times. Then I mean, I guess, I guess we all look out for for further collapses and more and more issues and and breaks within our financial environment. Well, it, indeed, but that's you know the list. Anyone listening, we go, oh God, you know, I've listened to all this bearish nonsense for fifteen years, and. Um, where would that have gotten? It's well, not that bearish. I mean, last time I mean, you wouldn't want to buy anything, and now you're thinking about buying things. So I think that's a that's a 180, 180 degree yeah, turn. I'm, I'm long that TLT at you know ninety five, um, and if we get a 60 percent from the highs in the S and P, oh my god, I'd be buying it. Yeah. I'm 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 buying. I mean, I'm when I say I'm buying, I'm intellectually buying. I, I'm, I'm gonna take a, a big comeuppance with my real estate investments mm -hmm. in St. Bart's. Now, again, I try to get myself out of some danger in that I believe... By, by offsetting some of the risk. Simply that domain I will see 
it's, or stitched yeah. to fortune, yeah. but I don't believe it's leveraged. Yeah. Um, there are only three banks, three, three French banks, who will lend you against the collateral of land yeah. there. Um, and mostly transactions are done uh, via disposals elsewhere and, 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 and equity. We'll see, but I think we've definitely seen the, the high mark on those properties for some time. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I would have some grayscale. Um, I definitely want to buy, you know, again, more liquidity events. I, I definitely want to buy that. Mm-hmm. So I'm buying Bitcoin with mm-hmm. a, basically I'm buying disc, uh, Bitcoin with a 40% discount. Yeah. I would do that. Yeah, yeah. I'm buying treasuries, um, which are trading on the 20 year price moving average. And I'm seeing if the S&P were to, to, to trade there, I would do the same. And if there's a puke in, in gold and gold mining stocks of that magnitude, you buy them back. Now I can buy them back. Yeah. Yeah. That looks super interesting. Um, now, last time you were here, you very kindly uh, answered my normal closing questions. But I thought what I would sort of comment on today is that you know, we are working, that's the Acid Capitalist and the, and the Different Perspective podcast, on a live summer collab, which obviously I'm very excited about, where you and I and, and another, another guest will, will talk in front of a, a live audience in London, of which, of which the audience will be able to participate and ask questions. So, and we're just sorting out the date, but I'm very excited by that. Um, I think the other guests should be very fearful because there is this saying in finance that, you know, in Hollywood, they say never share a stage with pets and kids. Yeah. Uh, in finance, they say never share a stage with an idiot at the asset capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's certainly not the case. Look, Hugh, this has been absolutely mega. Happy birthday. Enjoy the celebration tonight and very much look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.